This week, we talk with Tanya Jenka from Microsoft. In the new segment, RDP keeps us blue. Android taps out. Apple finds privacy in finding devices. DevOps versus DevSecOps, and more. Stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack, with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Welcome to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 64, just like the Commodore, recorded June 10th, 2019. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with Matt Alderman. Hey, Matt. I am back. Three weeks gone. It's good to be back. Uh, we missed you. It's good to be back. So we're looking forward to all of your insights and uh, comments this week about DevOps and DevSecOps. Register for our upcoming webcasts with Logarithm, Domain Tools, SaltStack, and ISC Squared by going to securityweekly.com webcasts. If you have missed any of our previously recorded webcasts, you can find our on-demand library at securityweekly.com on-demand. Security Weekly is returning to Vegas this August for Black Hat and DEF CON. If you would like to request a briefing or sponsor an interview on site at Black Hat, please go to securityweekly.com booking and submit your request. Tanya Jenka, also known as She Hacks Purple, is a senior cloud advocate for Microsoft. She specializes in application and cloud security, evangelizing software security, and advocating for developers and operation folks alike through public speaking, her open source project, OWASP DevSlop, and various forms of teaching via workshops, blogs, public speaking, and community events. As an ethical hacker, OWASP project leader, women of security chapter leader, software developer, and professional computer geek of 20 plus years, she is a person who is truly fascinated by the science of computer science. Hello, Tanya. It's great to speak with you again. It's great to speak with you. Hey, Mike. So I usually start off with, um, uh, whenever I talk to you, I love the She Hacks Purple because I think that's a great, uh, a great way to start into that idea of DevOps and DevSecOps. So you're purple. Why is that? Um, it's because I couldn't make up my mind between red team and blue team. <laughs> so uh, red teamers are attackers. Uh, so for instance, penetration testers are doing red types of activities, so offense, while blue is defense. Um, so things like, for instance, implementing a WAF would be a defensive type of tactic you could do. And then 
the more I learned about application security and how you could sort of dance in between those two sides, the more interested I became. And then people explained to me there's such thing as purple team. So it turns out I'm that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, that that's a great combination because you get to see the, the whole spectrum of concerns. And it's also uh, perhaps the new way to look at DevOps or DevSecOps. Because so I think mm -hmm. one of the things that we often talk about here too is you know modern apps going into the cloud and cloud native apps. That's also a different way to approach application building, let alone application security, right? It's not just let's lift and shift something into the cloud. Absolutely, it's it's so different. Previously, um, I don't I don't think any of the providers of uh, operating systems and such created security tools like back in the day and then slowly more and more have been created but with cloud native not only is the architecture different and there's so many different technologies involved now in more and new attack vectors but now there's cloud native tools that are designed specifically and only to protect your cloud so they act differently and um, basically they're they're trying to protect against these new types of attack surface, I guess you, you could say, attack opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way yeah. I've always equated it, Tanya, over the years was security was kind of an, an afterthought, right? We, we connected our um, network to the internet and we went, uh-oh, we need to protect it. So we, we put in a bunch of firewalls and then we realized that worms could still come in. And, the, you know, so we, we always kind of layered these technologies and the opportunity you know, a number of years ago when, when I, um, I was running strategy over at Tenable was, is, is we saw the move to containerization and cloud and the ability to re-architect an application. It also gave us an opportunity potentially, and this is where I want your take on this, is the ability to think about security as part of the development process. How do we embed security into the application instead of trying to deal with security from the outside like we've always done, whether it's a WAF or, or some other uh, uh, defensive mechanism, for example. Thoughts on that? Because I think that's the real opportunity with, with what's going yeah. on in the industry. Absolutely. That's basically my favorite topic, which you probably know. Um, <laughs> I talk a lot about um, shifting left or pushing left. And the idea is, is that you start security during the system development lifecycle and you start it earlier. So not at the end after there's an incident, not um, just during the testing phase, but at the very beginning. So you're gonna make an app, you make requirements, right? You decide what you're gonna build and security should be a part of that. And then you continue to add security throughout the entire process, including preparing for incidents so that hopefully they don't happen, but if they do, that you can actually recover in a graceful manner. Um, I think that previously uh, there was never any time given during the system development lifecycle to actually get security done. It would be this thing that the security team would come in near the end. Oh, we heard you're building an app. Yeah, we go live next week. Who are you? <laughs> right. And now um, the security team's a bit more on it. They realize that that's part of their um, portfolio of duties now. And uh, hopefully all of them are coming in sooner. I've seen um I've seen a lot of last minute things and I look really smart then uh, coming in near the end, but it's much better if we start at the beginning and everyone looks smart, especially if we enable developers with lessons and tools.
Yeah, are you seeing a trend? Because this is the trend I'm looking for, is that security is actually part of the DevOps team. It's not a separate group. Because to me, then, then the DevOps and the security folks all being together are actually trying to address this way at the front end of the process versus later in the process. Are, are you seeing enough of those trends where this is starting to come to realization? I think that everyone is talking about DevOps a lot and they're really excited. I'm really excited, so I, I feel it. Um, but the industry actually isn't really doing as much DevOps as we might think because of how much we're talking about it. There are a lot of places still doing waterfalls or agile or, and the, or some of them will add a pipeline with one or two tests, which is way better than no tests. Um, and then they'll say, oh, well, we're doing DevOps. Oh, there's actually a whole lot more to it. Um, but I would much rather a waterfall team start you know, testing regularly and just adding one security tool rather than them just saying, oh, well, I don't have it right out. I, you know, I'm not perfect, so we'll just quit, right? Um, the transition to DevOps is not always smooth. Uh, as you probably know, Microsoft went to DevOps and we like to air our dirty laundry. So we actually have like a whole website with all the stories of like lessons learned slash big mistakes we've made. Um, and, uh, if you ever if you ever feel bad about how you're doing, you could just go to that page and then and then read, and that will really help. Uh, but yeah, I'm seeing I'm seeing trends that people are more interested. I'm seeing that security uh, is considered more of a priority. But I'm also seeing a lot of um, I'm seeing a lot of consultants that charge a small fortune to run a scan with Burp Suite, and uh, I think we should scan things with lots of tools. I love Burp Suite. Um, but to me, that's not a full pen test or a full in-depth way that um, you could secure the security of your software. I, I would much rather than hiring one consultant one time for one week, I would much rather bring someone in that like helps you build a pipeline so that every single time you release any bit of code, there's testing done. Yeah, because Burp Suite is is a component of of a security test. I mean, there's there's static analysis at the source code layer. There's composition analysis of all the binaries and libraries included. There's dynamic scanning when it's when it's running live, and it's it's the integration of those multiple tools, as you said, into the pipeline, and and then it's automated. I don't have to hire that consultant again to to go out and run a single dynamic analysis scanner, for example, uh, yeah. once in a blue moon, I can actually iteratively test my code every time I'm running through the build process, every time I'm spinning the thing up in a test or QA environment, way more efficient, I think. Exactly. And then if you do bring in a consultant, bring them in to just hammer home with manual testing and, and a huge plethora of tools to get like those really nitty gritty um, business logic types of security vulnerabilities, things that you can't do with automation, right? So give the, the humans the interest to work, right? Make the humans implement a bunch of automated scanners so everything's automated from then on, and then bring a human in to do like more super advanced uh, manual style testing. I don't know, I've seen some consultants where their main job is pressing the scan button on Nessus, and I love Nessus, Nessus is awesome. But pressing the scan button is not that exciting. And then sitting and watching it scan, it's like, mm, there's probably better work that I could do for my organization than just sit here and yeah. watch this. 
and, and a lot of those should just happen. Like one of the, the the big aspects of like DevOps, DevSecOps is just continuous monitoring. That's just a scanner that is so easy just to launch on a continuous basis. Just let some automation take care of it. Like you were saying, humans can do that. And I'm curious too, because a lot of clouds actually do have, you know, to say cloud really oversimplifies what it actually means to go into one of these cloud environments. And that could actually be kind of overwhelming. So what do you see in as people move into the cloud? Are they using, you know, all of the services, one services? Are there services are actually missing that they, they're actually ending up paying for those simple one-off pen tests and they're not realizing that there are, you know, security capabilities and from these cloud service providers? So I'm really biased because I work for Microsoft. And I work and I work for Azure, um, and I can't give you exact percentages, but let's just say a lot of people, a lot of people are not using the cloud native tools, and I think it's because they just don't know they exist. Um, once I once I will show something to someone, they're like, "Why did no one tell us that at the start?" If I knew it would just VA itself, where I could just like flick a switch, and it would just scan all of my databases, you know, every week from now on, and it would just scan all my infrastructure up to the minute and do this and do that. And, you know, there's a switch for zero trust. Come on, why don't it tell me this? <laughs> and I think with the cloud, because there's so much to learn and uh, security training can be extremely expensive that just basically there's so many options and so many things to learn. They have to concentrate on only a few and, and people just aren't aware of the opportunities that are there. Third-party tools still are awesome in the cloud. Like they're still really good. If you already have a tool you love on-prem, just bring it to the cloud with you. But if you don't have a tool that you love on-prem, just like flip on the one that's there and try that because it's already set up as opposed to trying to integrate with your whole network. Yeah, I think there's even like nuances because I think you're alluding to that um, just-in-time access control that Azure has for um, uh, Zero Trust that also will just say, because you mentioned too, like attack surface and opportunity for attack throughout the, you know, your environment. But if something like just-in-time access control only opens ports once they're needed, um, that sounds like a, just a really smart, simple way to really close down that, that attack surface. Absolutely. And it's, it's funny because I'm on this team full of advocates and all of them are brilliant at the thing that they are the master at. Right? And whenever I have a meeting with them, I'm like, can I look in your Azure implementation? <laughs> I'm like, can I turn this on? Can I turn that on? Did you know this is happening? Can you just look here once a week and if something's red, kind of check it out or call me? And most of them, it's like they're, it's like I've, I've turned on this huge light bulb in their mind. They're like, oh, I could I can do that myself. I'm like, yes, I want you to be able to do things yourself. Uh, I did a talk recently with my friend Terry Ridicle. She's um she's a total badass cloud hacker, basically. And uh, we wanted to make a talk that would show people how to do their own security assessments of their cloud. So we did like this one hour thing of like, look here, turn on this, check that. Here's how you do this. Here's a link to here with a video that explains in more depth because we just want people to do their own security assessments. I, I want people to be able to go to the cloud and have like a decent security posture it, as quickly as possible because I like to use the internet and also it is my job. But quite frankly, um, 
as we're moving to the cloud, I would like it to go better instead of worse than on-prem. <laughs> Not only so you know our industry does well, but so that consumers, like, I don't know if, you, if you've thought about it, but I think a lot about the average person who you know has a phone and is having you know all these these difficulties, or who's had their identity stolen, or who's had their data in a breach. Um, a lot of people, you know, I'll be on an airplane or something, and the, the um, stewardess will say to me, "Oh yeah, you know, I keep getting these messages from Apple, and like someone stole all my stuff, and they keep buying things on here." And she's like, "What do I do?" And um, I feel that our industry, information security, we're trying really hard. We're working really, really hard, but we're not winning at this point. We're we're losing a lot, and I would love it where it becomes a huge deal that there is a data breach because they're so rare, right? That's um, a personal uh, career objective, or hopefully an objective for our whole, our whole industry. And I think that education and making things secure by default and making security just so much easier to implement. Like zero trust used to take a million years, right? And so now you can just flip on just in time. It closes all your ports by default. You have to open them manually. The only thing you know your database server will ever talk to is your app server. Um, and if you have, for instance, like the first thing I did was I, I made an app in Azure, of course, because that's what I'm going to do. I'm a giant nerd. And then I, I did the bad thing. I put my username for the password and my password in between the database and the app. And then Azure told me, no, you should use a service account. Oh, wow, thanks, thanks, I forgot. That's really great, right? So if it could just remind you of, of security best practices, like that's magical in my opinion. And oh, Tanya, you put database owner, but actually you just need read and write. Maybe you should reduce the permissions and do least privilege. Well, thank you for telling me. Because <laughs> um, in the past, that just wasn't available. It, like, it just wasn't an option at all. And um, I personally feel that that's extremely important, actually having timely guidance and guidance that's actually consumable and usable and understandable. Like, it, it'll tell you now, oh, you have cores set to star. And developers are like, yeah, because then it's easy then everything works. And then I explained to them, well, the reason why you don't want to set cores to star is because if you're vulnerable to cross-site scripting, the first thing any attacker will do is call out to another script that's theirs and that's more evil. Because usually fields are this big, they can't fit in all the malicious code they want to, so they call out to the other script. And if you set cores instead of star, you say, okay, my web app is only allowed to see, you know, I don't know, let's say like, stuff from Google Maps and then jQuery and then maybe one other thing and you're and that's it. Then you just foiled their entire plan for your app. Like you just ruined that attacker's day and life is better. Right? And so it'll just tell you now, oh, these three apps have core sets to start. Would you like to take a look? Yes, actually, thank you. I would like to. <laughs> yeah, yeah see, we, everybody we, used to make go ahead. Yeah, go I was going to say, we see some of this in the UI, in some of the UI frameworks, right? Where, yeah. where when you try to do something wrong, they name it, you know, as like big security hole. So people know that, yeah, whenever I do that, that's wrong. And so I guess the question 
Tanya, is there an opportunity to either turn some of these things on by default, which forces people to turn them off instead of to turn them on? Or is there a way to build a set of pre-configured templates that says, you know, this is like the best practice template that you should grab and use as a starting point, which has a lot of these features on it. And I, because I think that would help us actually build more secure code than relying yes. on the developers to actually turn some of these really cool features on yes. out of bound, out, out of band. Uh, so for, so of course I can only tell you about Azure cause that's the one I know the best and cause they pay me. So I am biased, I respect that. Um, but <laughs> you could turn on security sensor, which costs money, it's not free, but it will give you a ton of warnings. Uh, but within it, it has this really cool thing. So they have um, Sys benchmarks and they have ISO 27001 and they have all these different standards now. And you can say, that's my policy. And then it will tell you, you are breaking that policy. So you're not obeying this rule that's part of the Sys benchmarks as an example. And it will point out to you the problem as part of a list of prioritized things that, so it by default, it will just give you a bunch of recommendations of things that are best practices, but you get a lot more specific. So for instance, I don't believe HIPAA is up there yet, but um, we may or may not be working on it. Um, but the point is, is that if you can pick uh, the ones that are applicable to you, and then you add those as your policies, it will tell you automatically if you're not compliant. And for me, um, compliance uh, on paper is almost a waste of time, which is going to offend a lot of people, I'm sorry. But I, if you can't prove that those things are true and you only can check once a year because it takes so long to do this manual process, it's very, very costly, expensive activity. However, if you can you know, have it automatically checking like every few minutes that these things are true, and then you just go and look and you can see, you know, up to the hour that you are are not compliant. That's amazing. That's such, um, I'm looking for the expression, but it's just a huge, huge leap of more value for your time, right? And more accurate because I know as a developer, I may or may not have fibbed um, because I'm like, oh yeah, I'm totally gonna do that like tomorrow. So I'll just check yes. Right? Or I did that yesterday, we, but I turned it off because of this upgrade broke it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I've um, I've definitely uh, painfully been a part of those things on the security side and on the developer side. I'm like, oh, you enabled SSL one, okay? Because the printer wouldn't work. Okay, so I'm gonna buy a new printer. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, and the developers were like, well, we made it work. Like you, I, I just, yeah. Cause they just, they didn't understand that, you know, exposing that to the internet was really like the end of the world basically <laughs> from my point of view. But they're like the printer not working from our client's point of view is the end of the world. And I'm like, we're gonna buy yeah, new that's printers so much or upgrade our firmware, et cetera. <laughs> Totally. And that's so much more compelling story to use something like that security sensor that's actually giving you that baseline and highlighting on a continuous basis what's going wrong, rather than what I've seen the other end of that spectrum is this being managed in a spreadsheet with screenshots collected as evidence, you know, one time a year, like you were saying. So it's almost like, you know, I'm pretty sure you're describing Clippy that has gone DevSecOps or something, but it's going to be the yeah. Clippy that no one makes funny of anymore. Definitely. There's also I would say oh sorry. I, I would say that's more like the sec ops 
part of mm-hmm. DevSecOps. It's more like the ops side. And then for DevSecOps, there's you know adding all of the security tools to your pipeline to make sure that you get um, a secure app every time, right? Or that you there's, can do aggressive security testing. Yeah, and there's some more cool security tools that Azure is working on fuzzing too, right? So that's got to be some big deal for you know on the SecOps side of things. So what 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 does fuzzing look like in that in the cloud environment? And is it one of those things that yeah, totally turn it on day one for your dev team, or maybe wait a little bit? Like how should how should how should I approach that? How should someone approach that? So we just released Microsoft Risk Detection, and it does fuzzing. So it used to just do fuzzing of Linux apps and Windows apps. So you would upload a binary, and then we would basically throw the worst things at it possible, try to make it fail into an unknown state, and then report these things to you. So we did this, and then that happened. We did that, and this happened. We fear this vulnerability. You know, go check it out. Um, but we just released our first web apps in there. And... Uh, it's kind of a little bit like, remember we were talking earlier about Burp Suite, it's a little bit like that, um, but it actually has multiple engines within it to measure how much I'm not giving away, but it's a bunch of tools kind of all combined. And it's it's the suite that we use internally to make our app and our sites. And um, I've been telling them for a long time, like since I started, we should release this as a tool. And they're like, do you think people will want it? Yes, of course they'll want it. <laughs> Um, And so far, it appears people want it. Um, When you turn on a security tool in your pipeline, I would say the first thing you would want to do is set it to alerting uh, and not breaking your build. Because at first, you want to make sure the results are real. The very first time you run it, it's probably going to find a lot of things you didn't think about. You also want to see how long it takes to run, right? Dynamic application security testing can be quite slow. And if you have a giant, giant, giant app, you know you don't want a developer to push one line of code and then have it run for 21 hours and you didn't realize. Another thing you can do is make an asynchronous security pipeline. So you have the regular pipeline that helps you um, actually push to prod, but then you could have another one that kicks off that just runs a bunch of security tools and you could have that go in depth and buzz every single thing ever, have it do its symbolic execution where it tries to go down every possible path. Uh, And then you could just get the results after the security team and you haven't slowed anyone down. Generally, I advise that for dynamic application security testing that if you are a lightning quick DevOps shop, it might be too slow to do the whole thing. You might want to just do um, a subsection, like where you've released new features, or just do passive scanning. So it sees the things going in and out. It tells you about security headers, and this looks like cl- like you know, sensitive data, etc. And then do the actual in-depth fuzzing uh, in an asynchronous um, pipeline, or whatever way you decide to do it. But like you don't have any experience with those slow. Stuff. It'll be overwhelming. Don't be scared. It's okay. Well, Mike has a little experience with um, DAST scanners and and how how efficient <laughs> and fast they are. <laughs> yeah, I did a little bit about uh, web application scanning, and yeah, it is not not the most efficient thing. It's a fun problem to solve. To or well, let me say, it's a fun problem to try to solve. I'm not sure it's exactly solved, but uh, yeah, absolutely one of those important tools in the tool chain. 
if you had Tanya, if you if there was one thing because you've been mentioning a lot of things like oh let me look at your account and let's turn on this and this and this are there one mm -hmm. or two items that you would definitely recommend like this is on this should be on by default just because it it makes developers life easier it makes the op side easier it's just like security out of the box what are the one or two things that come to your mind in that in a cloud environment so turn on the native security features right so if in azure there's azure security center turn it on there's threat protection uh advanced data protection whatever turn it on and then reap the benefits um also monitoring and logging a lot of these tools don't work if you don't have those set up if you don't for instance if you don't turn on logging then there's an incident and then there's nothing to investigate because there's nothing to see because you didn't save anything what, one of the biggest things i would say with the cloud that i'm not seeing um very good compliance with but i think is so important is multi-factor authentication on the keys to your kingdom um i like if someone has a read-only account maybe you will decide it's worth accepting the risk to not have multi-factor authentication. But for me, for my personal Azure subscription, I have three-factor authentication. I have to put my fingerprint, I have to have my phone, I have to authenticate to my authenticator app, and I have to add a separate password. And I, I just, it's, those are the keys to my kingdom, right? And I, I've seen places where, you know, they have this master subscription, and all the other subscriptions are underneath it and they don't have multi-factor authentication turned on. And I find this actually like fairly terrifying. Um, I don't want one password to between, be, between me, excuse me, and my entire company potentially being destroyed, right? That's so huge. And some of my friends were joking, like, do you really need to have three factors? I'm like, do you know how embarrassing it would be being a security spokesperson for essentially the biggest security company on the planet and then having my account owned. Do you understand? <laughs> that would be so humiliating. And, and I'm, you know, like I just do demos in my account, right? Imagine, you know, a CISO or a CIO that doesn't have multi-factor authentication on their accounts. Like it, it's quite common and, um, yeah, if you like it, then you should put some MFA on it. Just like Beyonce says, you should put a ring on it, put some multi-factor authentication on it. Mm. <laughs> we have Absolutely a new song. Awesome advice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll have to work on that. But yeah, I think but you're yeah. right. Even just, yeah. No, no, you. I was just going to say, even giving, like, there's a lot of cases too. Like, why even give the CISO access to a lot of these systems? That's also the other part too, is that, you know, if you don't need it, maybe, maybe you need to read some logs or maybe you want to, you know, watch the monitoring events. But yeah, also just even, even you know, MFA aside, least privilege. Like, if you don't need that access, don't have it. Because I, I have those same worries. There's a lot of things that, I don't need access to that prod system. I want to talk about the architecture design, but we can do that on a whiteboard and in a document. I don't need to actually go and, and touch that system. Yes, yes. And, and also in the cloud, I think that certain things are changing and we have to change our mindset in order to be um, ready for the new types of threats. So, you know, traditionally on-prem, we would do a whole bunch of firewalls with big zones and everything would be in the zone. Um, but now it would appear in the cloud that the new perimeter is actually identity, right? And if in in the cloud, so whichever cloud you use, or if you use a multi-cloud or a, a um, 
multi-cloud uh, solution, or if you have a cloud and then on-prem things, you should just have one identity system and have it handle all of your, um, like all of the rules and least privilege. Like you can make a beautiful organization tree and actually have it implement all of that perfectly. And that is a lovely place to be where you know exactly who has access to security center. And when I switch teams, let's say, um, let's say I switched into one of the engineering teams, then when I moved within my organization, all my permissions are moved, all my stuff has changed and at least a privilege least privileges automatically applied as opposed to previously there are a bunch of firewalls. And if I just had passwords to things, I still had passwords to those things. And it was such a pain. And um, yeah, identity is, is being used in a lot of new and amazing ways in the cloud that I didn't see on-prem. And I'm starting to think it's the new perimeter. Yeah, I've, I've always equated it to a combination of the application and the identity. Because um, yes. the identity yeah. is gaining access to an application. Application is yeah. really the gateway into the data source. And I've always said, at the end of the day, when we're done with this transformation, app user data are the three things that stay. Everything else, eh, maybe not. Yeah, exactly. And also um, creating service accounts, right? So. Tanya's account is never the one to talk between the database and the app. The database, or uh, sorry, the app has its own identity within your entire system. And so it has, it uses its user, a service account to access, you know, your secret store or to access your database. And it's doing it on behalf of itself. So if I have a dev, like, let's say I made an app called DevSwap, I might've done that. It can't access a bunch of other apps. It only has access to its thing, again, least privilege like for your applications. I feel like um, the architecture that's happening in the cloud, because you don't have all the technical debt that you're bringing with you necessarily, is a lot more advanced, a lot more modern, and a lot more exciting. <laughs> and it also sounds like when you're looking at that identity aspect, it also sounds like there's still that danger of accruing some sort of maybe we'll call it configuration debt or even identity debt because yes. um you know how do you keep track of those you know you have a lot of microservices maybe they change over the time and their permissions change over time so maybe there's also a bit of a like a permission creep or um you know that their their privileges start to go up and up and up over time too how can can is that something that we can keep an eye on can we solve that too or you know how how terrifying is that as well you can definitely audit these things. I know that um, Netflix made this really cool thing called um, RepoKid, and they made it with CloudTrail. Uh, and Azure has its own uh, its own thing that does that. And basically, you check and see what's being called and what's not being called. And then if certain permissions haven't been used for a while, it removes them. And um, I think that that is amazing. They open sourced the thing that they made, which is outstanding, right? like that's really cool. They didn't have to do that. Um, and I think that there's a lot of companies doing a lot of really creative things with ways that we could audit these. I definitely uh, believe less is more with regards to permissions, obviously. Um, but I think, again, like you have to audit these things and auditing it automatically is probably the best thing we could do there for sure. Yeah, that automation has to be a theme of what keeps coming out. And and also, too, calling out Netflix is that's a great example of uh, cloud-native applications. They didn't try to move things into the cloud. They just said, we're all in. This is what's going to happen. And 
lo and behold, here's a couple, as you said, awesome open source tools that they're actually sharing as well. And I know, Tanya, you've shared a lot of, you know, um, you mentioned DevSlop, um, and you uh, share a lot of just knowledge speaking. Uh, what's coming up over the summer for you? Where, where can we find some more of your, um, your work? I'm going to be at Hacker Summer Camp, also known as Black Hat DEF CON Diana Initiative. Uh, so I'll be speaking there at a Diana Initiative, and I'm not sure where else just yet. Um, but we're going to hold a WOSEC meetup, Women of Security, so a great big meet up for lots of women to meet each other so that you can kind of partner up and go to talks together so you feel a bit more secure because you show up with a posse of friends. Uh, yeah, I think there's there's going to be some other appearances that I can't mention yet, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, definitely that. I'm also going to be at DevSecCon in Seattle in September, which is a conference dedicated only to the topic of DevSecOps, which is obviously my favorite topic. Uh, and then um, I'm going to be going to Sector in, uh, in the fall, which is in Toronto. And I'm going to be doing basically a talk where it's like cloud security explains, like, what does zero trust mean? How do you do that? Like, what are cloud native tools? How is a cloud native approach different? And I want it to be a talk where anyone in IT could go. And then they're like, I, am, I know enough to be dangerous in cloud now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's um, awesome. Also, the DevSwap show is back. Um, I did a lot of traveling this winter, and I found it really hard to keep up the regular Sunday streams. Mm -hmm. uh, so then Nancy Grisha has joined the project, and now we're kind of going back and forth on Sunday. So every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we're going to stream something to do with how to add security, whether it be to your pipeline or cloud-native approaches. Or I'm kind of interested in... Um, the blockchain lately because my Microsoft released one of those and I can't help myself. I kind of want to build one now. <laughs> and of course, obviously I'm silly, so I would probably code it live because I'm a masochist. Um, but yeah, so every Sunday, Nancy or I or both of us are going to be streaming something in the afternoons if people want to tune in and see whatever we're currently learning. You can see us fail, you can see us succeed, you can learn new things. You can ask questions because it's interactive. Or you could help. We really like it when you give us the answers. That's awesome. Well, it's, well, thanks for taking out time on a Monday to come uh, speak with us and give us some uh, highlights on cloud native and zero trust that it sounds like we'll be hearing again more of in uh, Sector uh, this fall. So thanks again, That's Tanya. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me so much. Yeah, this is a great conversation. And uh, thanks as well, Matt. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to return with news of the week. Sysdig is the first cloud native visibility and security platform that eliminates the need for standalone tools like container security and monitoring. Using Sysdig's unique data approach, enterprises can solve a variety of visibility and security issues at massive enterprise scale for multi and hybrid cloud environments. Sysdig will enable your organization to scan and block vulnerable images and enforce best practices pre-production, block threats, enforce compliance, and monitor application performance, proactively alert on incidents, reduce MTTR with forensics, and capture detailed audit records. All from a single, unified platform. Accelerate your transition to containers and then have confidence in your ongoing operations using Sysdig. To learn more, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Sysdig. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman. Some of you told us 
that you are overwhelmed by the amount of content we distribute. In an attempt to make it a little easier for you to find what you're interested in, we've created our new listener interest list. Sign up for the list and select your interests by visiting securityweekly.com slash subscribe and clicking the button to join the list. You can also now submit your suggestions for guests in our recently released guest suggestion form. Go to securityweekly.com slash guests and enter your suggestions. Security Weekly will be at Hacker Halted in Atlanta, Georgia this October 10th through 11th. EC Council is offering our listeners a 15% discount to sit for any of their bootcamp courses or workshops. Visit securityweekly.com slash hackerhalted to register now. Matt, there's been, uh, I guess it's been about three weeks since we've seen you, and uh, there's been a lot of security news that has just happened in this only in the last one week. A lot of it about phones. Also, wanted just to start off some more wormification of this uh, RDP vulnerability called Bluekeep. So, mostly I wanted to highlight this so I could make the Pink Floyd reference that we're basically waiting for the worms to come, because even uh, NSA has come out and said, please patch your systems. And, um, you know, one of the aspects here is RDP is a default remote access capability for your cloud services. Um, it, either it's usually either RDP for Windows or SSH for your, you know, Linux-based systems. Um, but this was also when we talked about it a couple weeks ago, you know, Microsoft even put out a patch for Windows XP. So for as much as we are going to keep focusing on DevOps, DevSecOps, you know, modern application security, there's still a lot of scary tech debt out there that just means millions of systems are potentially able to be compromised by something like this that could be a worm. Yeah, we, and we see this also with the, the next story on the email side as well is, you know, some of these legacy systems that have vulnerabilities have huge potential impact uh, to organizations, not only at the system level, but even at the application level. Yeah, so that um, XM, the, the mail transfer agent, so um, basically what helps our email get, get around the internet, um, had a cool vulnerability that was identified that was specifically a remote command execution, meaning it was able to execute commands um, through basically what was a parsing error in um, addresses. So I wanted to highlight this for a couple of reasons. One, XM is pretty ancient technology, just in the sense that it's been around since the dawn of the internet. You know, there's XM, there's Bind, a couple of these core types of services that really drive the internet. And, and this also hasn't even really had a problem of security in a long time. It's, it's not notorious for always having a critical update or always having vulnerabilities and so on. But just a good reminder that parsing is hard and anytime you're parsing data, make sure you're, you know, doing that classic separation of code from data so that, you know, attacker influenced data can't actually turn into a pipe into a command shell or be dropped into, in this case, an exec VE and then just be the next bin SH and um, to throw other fancy language that sounds fancy, but is actually pretty straightforward types of uh, remote attacks. Another thing that was, um, probably is always going to be around for us is adware now in this case 
came across uh, Lookout, found a, one particular adware that stood out because of its, um, was doing a lot of work to obfuscate itself. And I think in, it, it had hit around half a million installations from the uh, Google Play Store. Yeah, I mean, this this goes back to the part of the conversation we just had on the software supply chain, right? Looking for what's embedded in my code, right? Here you have this this piece of adware embedded in these applications with, like you said, almost you know a half a million download or five hundred million downloads, um, and serving up you know ads and and in the environment and people didn't know it was there again going back and kind of doing your composition analysis what's in my code base you know this is a this is a big one right here yeah absolutely and there's that aspect of that composition analysis and how you know how does like that software bill of materials kind of fit into here because it's not necessarily trying to address that malicious actor it's you know that bill of materials is trying to address hey here's some vulnerabilities in third-party software uh, that you should know about and go fix it but um so it still is going to be an attack vector to keep an eye on and figure out what can we do to uh, find it tap it down and uh, get rid of it quickly rather than later yep there was another really cool one that um, just stood out for me from the perspective of a, a creative threat model and threat scenarios. So um, there was this tap ghost um, uh, vulnerability uh, or sort of like an attack uh, developed by a couple of researchers out of Japan. And they were basically showing what could be considered a, um, a sort of the Android version of clickjacking in a way, or a UI redress, or what's called that confused deputy attack, where essentially they're using NFC to trigger an interaction with your device. So here your device, Android, goes to a link, and rather than says, you know, when, once it prompts a user to interact and say, do you want to go here, yes or no, it's going to actually throw in some jitter onto the capacitive touchscreen. So rather than your finger landing on the yes or no that you're expecting it to be, this um, uh, the, the attack mechanism, which does actually have to be very close in proximity because it's taking advantage of NFC and it's basically generating a lot of errors within that capacitive touchscreen. So rather than the human tapping, um, uh one one part you know one particular button the attack creates a ghost touch that taps the other one that could lead into some other type of you know vulnerability chaining download malware etc cetera, etc cetera. but what was really just neat is that it, it pull it, it came more so into that hardware and communications world rather than just being a pure uh software vulnerability um so, so that was pretty neat to me and that's the kind of thing that i think show some cool cleverness as for as much as these, um, you know, our devices are starting to talk to each other, which we're going to mention in just a second, via NFC and Bluetooth. And um, we have nice touch screens and capacitive touch. There's a lot of cool electrical engineering that goes into this that doesn't make it so perfect. There's a lot of error and jitter that um, these devices need to deal with. Yeah, and, and what's interesting in this particular article is, you know, they get into a demo and they get into the science about how this actually works. And you're right, it's a lot of electrical engineering principles around how the current in, in, from the finger can be detected and then and ghosted. Um, so it's, it's really interesting when you think about the types of techniques we're using to give us these cool capabilities 
also have limitations in science and have vulnerabilities from a science perspective or can be spoofed potentially uh, from pure science. Exactly. And that's why my, my only wish here is that they had gone for a name like Phantom Menace or something so we could go into the proper science fiction aspect of this. But um, I will use that as a segue to talk about um, Apple. So they made a bunch of really interesting announcements last week. But one thing that was really interesting, and this goes into the science of cryptography, um, they are talked. They talked to Wired magazine about how, in their new um, Catalina and iOS 13, they were going to improve that Find My device, and they were going to do it in a way that everyone's devices are now broadcasting to nearby devices via, via Bluetooth. So that they can say, essentially saying, hey, I'm here, hey, I'm here, ad nauseum. So that if your device does get lost, stolen, et cetera, you and, it's, and your device has been turned off, you actually have a pretty good idea of where it was last as well as where it pops up again and starts talking to other devices. Now, there's a couple major potential issues here especially for tracking and privacy. So if your Apple device is, you know, always saying, hey, I'm over here, I'm over here, I'm over here, and either Apple or even the devices and people around you are tracking that, that's, you know, that, that, that's that creepy factor. That's that ick factor that this isn't really cool. So what Apple has done through, and I'm going to hand wave a little bit here, but through some pretty good end-to-end -end cryptography, and some good anonymization, they're essentially saying these device, the devices you own are going to establish a key that only they know, that Apple doesn't know. They're going to use this key to encrypt just a few bits of data that they're going to drop into part of these normal Bluetooth communications that it typically does already. So it's not like it has to, to do any additional um, traffic generation. And it's going to rotate those keys. And that key rotation um, is going to make it possible to say, while I'm walking through the vendor hall at DEF CON, um, sure, you're going to see a couple Bluetooth beacons coming on my phone. But as I go throughout the entire day, those beacons are going to be different and then different again and different again. And you're not going to have, at least from that one particular signal, a good way to correlate those individual encrypted Bluetooth tokens, essentially to a single individual person or a single device. And to me, that's really, really cool. Yeah, what's really cool about this is by implementing that technique, it, it allows you to find out where your device is, but really nobody else, even Apple themselves, because of the rotation of the keys and the secrecy of the private keys uh, in, in the collection of this data, is it can beacon constantly, which is not supposed to impact battery or, or any of the other performance on the device, and give the owner of those devices much better identity of where those devices are without exposing that to everybody else. And I, it, that's a really interesting feature. It is neat. And one of the things, you know, I encourage everyone to read through the article because it's also just a great exercise in threat modeling. Because just think of, sure, we encrypted everything. It's confidential. Awesome. We protected it. Nobody can peek in. But just as you were saying just now, Matt, you know, that threat model of who's actually watching, as well as what if we as the end users, our threat, so to speak, is actually Apple itself, you know, tracking us or using our data to sell to third parties. Because there's a lot of, you know, just as we mentioned that adware um, and malicious adware um, just a few uh, minutes ago, that's where money is. Whether you're a, a, well, whether you're a legit operator 
collecting user information to sell to advertisers, or you're actually just trying to sell fraudulent clicks on ads because that way you can collect revenue in some way. There's money to be made here. Um, so this is a really cool thing to see. Yeah, and it hopefully does, more people yeah. use the feature <laughs> instead of yes. turning it off. Yeah, and that's where um, even a couple, I, I want to say this was four years ago now, um, one of the iOS releases, they introduced app transport security, which basically said the device is going to automatically promote every single web request in from HTTP into HTTPS. But a lot of people balked and said, well, we don't actually have all of our own services set up to be HTTPS only. So there's a couple issues there. Um, supposedly, there's an article that came out relatively recently about this saying just a lot of, you know, ad servers and the ad ecosystem didn't have a lot of their own services set up for uh, to handle HTTPS. So essentially, there was, you know, developers were being told by um, Apple, say, hey, there's this great service It's going to encrypt everything by default. And then all of these other you know, third-party tools and other third-party services were saying, yeah, please don't use that. It doesn't work with our stuff. So um, there's a little bit of a give and take here in the sense of just hoping developers actually focus on HTTP everywhere, get those Let's Encrypt certificates, and um, start using something like HSTS to, to also help enforce those, um, those connections. What's in, but, this is yeah. part of the reason why I asked the, the question to Tanya in the last segment was mm -hmm. by default, right? This is a feature that's there by default. Apple made this feature available four, four plus years ago, something like that. And two thirds of developers are turning it off. They're actively turning it off um, for, for obvious reasons. You know, some of the other systems that they're using don't support it. But here's a great case where you can provide better security in iOS itself by leaving this default feature on and two thirds of users are turning it off. Now, Apple at one time, I think at the end of 2016 or yeah, I think it was around the end of 2016, they were gonna force this as, there was no way to turn it off. Now they backed off of that um, before it went live, I guess in 2017. But this is a really good example of <laughs> the, the, the silly things we do sometimes from an application development perspective to protect our applications, this is a really good capability that <laughs> we're turning off because our ad server or this or that, it doesn't support HTTPS. Yeah, and it's one of those things that <clears throat> it, it, it used to be the case. I used to be more, a little bit more forgiving that, yeah, deploying HTTPS is pretty complicated. But if you're going into a cloud environment, you can use Let's Encrypt. There are so many tools, whether free or commercial, just to help with deploying certs, managing certs, checking the rotation, which is the one thing that everybody gets tripped up on. But yeah, this is one of those things. It's a little bit harder to build too much sympathy for developers to actually be turning off you know, a secure default. And we've seen, you know, Apple isn't even the only one trying to push forward on these things. We saw Chrome and SHA-1 certificates saying Chrome coming out and saying, you know what, we're actually going to deprecate these certificates and we're going to mark them as not trusted. And then we're going to start to mark certain um, TLS ciphers, you know, not trusted. And then we're actually going to be a lot more vocal in our browser about the, you know, how well deployed this HTTPS endpoint is for this web application. And let alone, here's where you start to hit the money. Um, we may even demote your page ranking based on whether you have HTTP or HTTPS. And that's the one thing to like, 
go out, go after the money and that can be a motivator for developers. Yeah, exactly. And so speaking of motivating developers, um, on a more positive aspect, it looks like um, Red Hat has a OpenShift 4. And that's got to be a good thing for um, everyone in, you know, within that type of ecosystem, right? Yeah, I mean, so at KubeCon a few weeks back when I was over there in Barcelona, we actually had Red Hat on one of the panels and, and we talked a little bit about pieces of this. Version 4 is now um, released. Here's what's interesting to me. Uh, two of the components in this announcement are actually part of the CoreOS acquisition, right? Um, which was a really interesting acquisition at the time that it happened. As you were watching the whole container platform ecosystem play out, you really had kind of three major players. You had obviously Docker, uh, Red Hat, OpenShift, and and Mesos and, and Mesosphere and, and the Marathon guys, right? And from an enterprise perspective, you know, Red Hat was really winning a lot of the container platform. Um, environment they were they were winning i mean they were doing better than docker uh in, in the the adoption of of openshift and they go out and they buy core os and they buy core os i think more for kubernetes but core os had a lot of other stuff in it right it had claire which was uh the static analysis uh software composition tool which was open source they had the the core os the the container os and they had a bunch of kubernetes capabilities so here Really great from a security perspective. Red Hat buys CoreOS. Now what you're seeing is the results of that acquisition. You have Kubernetes operators. You have the Linux CoreOS capabilities now supported natively in OpenShift 4, which means a lot of the integration components from that acquisition have made its way into enterprise OpenShift. And I think that's great for anybody leveraging this platform. Yeah, just, yeah, all those integrations, it's... it's basically saying it kind of ties in that that ongoing theme we have here of saying you don't just do devops by doing one aspect like just taking your legacy web app putting it into like a container and then throwing it out on the cloud didn't really make you you know cloud native or that didn't really make you devopsy um to coin the word so this is right. definitely that kind of aspect that, that makes it get there yeah, and I think you're going to continue to see these container platforms continue to add more capabilities. Because if I think about the best place to integrate security in my new container application, I think the container platform vendors themselves are in a really good position if they embrace it to bring it in and make it really easy for the developers not only to develop and deploy applications from a containerization perspective, but also potentially integrate security components in as part of those build processes and just make more secure code as part of those overall platforms. And I think that's the potential opportunity that Red Hat, Docker um, have. Docker hasn't done it really to, to much extent. I mean, they announced it at DockerCon a year ago, but you really haven't seen much. Here, you're starting to see Red Hat moving some of these capabilities from the CoreOS acquisition into the platform, which I think is good. That is good. And that, I think, helps us also, especially when you're calling attention to those security aspects and bringing those security tools into that development and that deployment orchestration system, that that's was highlighted in that other article we've got here that um, talking about, you know, 
are we doing DevOps or DevSecOps as well? Or what does that mean to throw in that security angle for it? And real quick, I think the, the, the line that made me love this article, there's one line near the end that it actually, when it's talking about the DevOps lifecycle, it talks about planning, coding, pre-production, and it throws in that phrase and even decommissioning because that decommissioning where you call it like we have short-lived immutable, immutable systems that just get thrown away on a weekly basis or we just have a service that's been around for a month or sorry for maybe even like a year but we're going to replace it with something new and fresh that a lot of the cloud i love the aspects of getting rid of or minimizing tech debt and that to me is just a huge you know unspoken aspect or implied aspect of where security comes into this whole process yeah and the reason i pulled this article in is is we actually talked about this on the last segment with Tanya again is DevOps capabilities. Everybody's at a different level of maturity. You know, she talked a lot about people say they're doing DevOps, but they're they're not really full DevOps compared to how ready are we for what people think is next, which is DevSecOps, right? And there's still a gap in there's a disconnect between what DevOps from a development perspective is actually doing versus can we truly get to a DevSecOps? It's this whole concept of shifting left from a security perspective, getting embedded earlier into the design and development process where we can integrate security into the pipeline, secure our applications better from the the get-go. And this article talks about, look, there's still a big divide here. And so we can talk about DevOps, we can talk about DevSecOps, but but there's still a gap here that has to be resolved. And I, I put it on some of us from a security perspective, security vendors, and being willing and, and working closely with how do we integrate security tools into the developer tools. I think that's a huge part of, of where the disconnect is. And if we can cross over uh, that kind of that hump and, and really embrace the developer tools, and put our security capabilities in those tools, I think we can realize some really interesting uh, benefits from a security perspective. But again, even organizations aren't, who say they're DevOps aren't fully DevOps either. So, you know, there, there's there's definitely some nuances here. Yeah, definitely nuances and definitely, but, but great opportunity to grow into it. So, you know, um, Tanya was mentioning, you know, Azure has security scanning capabilities, let alone fuzzing capabilities. Um, Google, when they had, what was it, two or three months ago, um, they also announced bringing out of beta their own like web application scanner looking for cross-site scripting, just basic stuff like that. So putting that right in the hands of the developers. So it's basically flip a switch. And this is just, you know, basically within your IDE, here's just another little checkbox that says, and actually to a little bit better confidence here, add security. And I don't mean that kind of dismissively of checkbox security, but it is that easy to like work within where the developers are and developers responsibility. It's not like they have to pull in some particular application scanning expert who knows how to run and tweak this particular type of type of SAS scanner or, or DAS scanner. It just can happen because it's available. But by the same token, you know, that actually has to be enabled. People actually have to pay attention to it. Plus, it's not going to solve everything. So I'll be the very first, as much as I love those DAS and web app scanners, I'll be the first one to admit there's quite a large gap between what that automation can do and what humans need to do. 
And I think that is also that part about if we try, you know, we say shift left is pretty easy shorthand, but where is our attention being focused from a security perspective? And not even just having those tools available, but having those conversations around threat models, sort of like, what are you building? And let's not worry so much about the programming language or the particular components or how this microservice talks to this other one and has you know, mutual cryptographic identification. It's more of like, what's the data going back and forth here? What are those workflows? What's that business logic and things that can go wrong? And I think that's also one of those aspects about training is that InfoSec community has talked about training for ages and ages and ages. And I'm still a bit skeptical about what training really sticks versus just like here is something that is you know a couple slides presented and then walked away that doesn't hasn't obviously really fixed anything if we're still dealing with cross-site scripting you know 20 plus years later yeah well that's why i like tanya's concept of that feedback loop right yeah you're doing this but maybe you shouldn't do that maybe you know (laughs) if you had those feedback loop mechanisms that's a better way to learn because you're like, oh yeah, I shouldn't have done that, right? I should have used a service account over here. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done this or that it, from a configuration standpoint. That I think helps people learn better than maybe some of these other ways we've we've tried to train people in the past, especially developers, right? Because they've got a lot of other things they're doing. Uh, Security is just another component of that. Yeah, and she was saying that was what was really cool is like, you know, as your the the Microsoft team is posting, here's what we learned about DevOps. Here's what went well, here's what went bad. And we're starting to see like that trend from some really big players. So and I think it's great because it's that idea of that no one is so big that they can do no wrong, or just because they're big or because you recognize their name, they must have, you know, their everything is perfect there. Um, and that kind of ties into that Google outage that happened um, over last uh, weekend. Um, and Google now just posted their postmortem about it. So talk about being pretty transparent and pretty open on something that technically wasn't security related, but still had a DevOps impact. And he, so here is that feedback loop you were just talking about, Map, is um, saying when they come out and said, guess what? I'm going to quote here, two normally benign misconfigurations and a specific software bug combined to initiate the outage. So that's just a great opening for something Mm -hmm. that is like, you know, four hours of downtime where, you know, not only were it was a ton of Google services taken down, but Snapchat and, um, you know, a bunch of other services like People's Nest. And they were saying either I can't turn on my AC and it's pretty warm right now or I can't even get into my door. So here's the other highlight of that. You know, there is a bit of brittleness in our Internet of Things uh, environment right now. Yeah. And it, what I thought was the most interesting out of this. Yeah, OK, there's a bug. But this is where configuration, I think, is the one thing that that uh, we don't pay enough attention to in the cloud is a misconfiguration that can bring yeah. down entire services, right? We, we always kind of tend to focus on the vulnerabilities, but there are a number of configurations for each of these services. And if you don't understand what those configurations are doing or how they interact, it can create issues like this, like, it's, like they said two benign misconfigurations but when linked together with a bug it brings an entire service down for four hours and so i don't think we spend enough time on on our 
cloud service configurations, which I think is going to be an important thing for us to continue to focus on in the industry and correlate that in with the other aspects of security flaws and vulnerabilities because they they are interlinked. And when they come together in, in a very bad way, these are the types of things that happen. Yep. And I would also throw into that hat, um, in addition to misconfigurations, uh, that that overly scoped permissions. So that idea of identity, whether it's humans or service accounts, that we talked about that with Tanya as well. That um, I'm even though at the very beginning of this new segment, I mentioned that RDP vuln. So here's something that's going to be a great wormification of the internet for whatnot. But I'm still going to bet you that the pen, the good pen testers out there, the good red teams out there, all they really want is to find that one set of credentials, and that's your best backdoor, that's your best zero-day, haha, into any network, especially cloud environments, because wow, they can get pretty complicated. With you know, RBAC is a great concept, but once you start to try to understand all the permission models and how granular it is. You can get so confused. You can just make some accidents happen. They're like, oh, well, I added this permission to make the service work because it wasn't working before, but it just so happens that was probably way more permission than a service needs. And so now you've, without realizing it, exposed more, you know, much more data than you had expected to. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So I was going to end... Um, and real quick, this is episode 64, so a nice, great power of two. And um, of course, made me think of my old Commodore 64. And uh, learning BASIC was my first programming language. So I don't know um, if you you were playing around with Commodore or what what your first uh, computer was, Matt. My first computer was a Commodore 128. So we have to wait nice. uh, a little okay. while before we get to episode 128. But yeah, kind of the same thing. Oh, Commodore 128, BASIC programming then pascal and a few other languages along the way including c and c plus <laughs> plus which i haven't touched in uh let's see 96 so it's been a while since i've i've played with any uh real code but yeah yeah me too the uh that web app scanner that we alluded to c plus plus and i absolutely loved it but um definitely a bit dusty now but um even so you know i still remember because the Commodore came out in uh, August 1982, so that's 37 years ago. But um, also remember that fondly. But um, I think what we'll do is we're going to invite all of our listeners to stick around for at least another 64 episodes so we can get to episode 128, because that would be pretty awesome, and we'll go even beyond there. So uh, thank you, Matt. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we're going to see you next week on Application Security Weekly. 